<laughs> I don't know if that's been your experience or not, but I do know that in our culture, a lot of people believe that that's what worship is all about. If you mention the word worship, many people in our culture automatically default to, oh no, just another boring worship service that, uh, you know, church service that really doesn't have much relevance for my life anyway. And so therefore, they kind of rule it out. They kind of uh, scoff at it. But this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture uh, that tells us that real worship absolutely has nothing to do with what Mr. Bean experienced. has absolutely nothing to do with another boring old church worship service. And so I want to draw your attention to Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. I have, a new, I have a new toy here today, oh, and it's working. That's good. Okay, so I'm going to set it right there. Uh, we're going to record our messages from now on. And so if you miss a Sunday, we're going to post them on our, our website, and you can go to our website and listen to them. They'll have all of, the, all of the, uh, the slides and everything for you, and I'll put a PDF on there. So if you want to download the PDF and fill in the blanks, you'll be able to do that as well. So we're getting real high tech here. So how many of you understood anything I just said? PDF, you got that? Okay, whatever that is, I don't know. Okay, but let's take a look at Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. It says, while he was in Bethany, now who's the he here in the passage? Okay, you know, when I, was in, when I was a youth pastor, there was this kid in my church, and he said, there's seven basic Sunday school answers. Seven basic Sunday school answers. Sin, Jesus, God, love, redemption, salvation, and prayer. He said, if you have those seven words in your vocabulary, you can answer 90% of the question the pastor asks. Okay, so Jesus is one of those. So uh, who's the he here? Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Okay, now you know the seven basic Sunday school answers. Okay, while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. I love the word nard. Okay, it kind of reminds me of nerd. You know, so everybody say it together with me, nard. Yeah, thank you. Okay, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and then the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them at any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, this lady does an incredible act of worship. In fact, we're going to find out that there's three ways that she loved and worshipped Jesus. And so while everybody else was criticizing this woman, Jesus heaped praise on her. He said, man, she's done a great thing for me. She has prepared me for what lies ahead. She has given me what is my due just reward. So if we're going to love and we're going to worship Jesus like this lady did, then we're going to do three things. The first of them is we're going to worship him extravagantly. Okay, extravagantly. Now, when we love like this woman loved, we're going to go overboard. We're going to go beyond the ordinary. We're going to overdo it to the point where some people will say, we're really wasting resources. How many of you come from a Catholic background? You know, one of the things I really like about the Catholic Church, 
which I have grown to like. At first, I didn't like it at all. Okay, the Catholic Church, I thought, wasted a lot of money on their buildings. You know? I thought, man, they have all of this stuff, all of this gold, all of this statuary, all of these great you know, architectural features, and they're wasting a lot of money. But when I read this story, I realize that they're giving Jesus what is duly and justly his. They're giving him honor. They're giving him extravagance. And just as this lady poured this great wealth of oil upon him, so too I think the Catholic Church has revered him in the way they have constructed their buildings. Now, let's take a look and find out who this extraordinary lady is. Anybody know what her name is? Ah, it's Mary. In fact, if you read this same story that's recorded in John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Six days before the Passover, same story, Jesus came to Bethany, same town, where Lazarus lived, same family, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, this is at least the third episode that we're going to see in the life of Mary, Martha, the two sisters, and their brother Lazarus. Okay, and we're going to talk about the first one. The second one was when Jesus came and raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, most people that have gone to to Sunday school and know the seven basic Sunday school answers will recognize that this is the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead the second time we see this family. And now we're at the third time. So in verse number two, he says, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Now, if you know much about Mary and Martha, that's exactly where Martha is. She's the servant. She's the doer. Okay. While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, what is Mary doing at this time? Oh, she, well, she's actually sitting kind of behind him and she's, get, she's getting ready and has already, as we read the story, performed this great act of worship, recognizing the value of Jesus. Now, when we first met this family, Jesus goes to their house for dinner. Mary is sitting at his feet. Martha is in the kitchen getting the food ready and doing all the service preparations. And Martha believes that everybody ought to do the same thing. How many of you believe that everybody ought to carry their load? You know, and, and when I'm carrying my load and there's other people around that don't have a load, what, are they, what should they do? They ought to help me carry my load, right? And so Martha's in the kitchen carrying the load. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus while he teaches. And so Martha gets a little unhappy and she comes out into the room and she says, Jesus, why don't you tell Mary to help me out with the food and preparations and the service? And Jesus says, oh, there's a lot of things to be worried about here. There's a lot of stuff going on, but Mary has chosen the better thing. And I always look at that and I wonder, you know, what's more important, being or doing? Being a Christian or doing Christian activity? Now, a lot of people would say it's, you know, and a lot of people would say it's important to be a Christian, right? Be a Christian before you do Christian. However, everything we get taught in church is you ought to behave right, right? Okay, you ought to act Christian. You ought to look like, you know, I remember going to church. My mom would say, hey, you know, remember, you know, remember who you're representing. I used to have youth pastors that would say the same thing as we were getting ready to go on a trip or something. And I always thought, what do they think we're going to do? You know, remember who you're representing. And I think, well, okay, yeah. And, you know, it was all about behavior, you know. And so we get this thing in our head that we have to behave properly. But I want to suggest to you that Mary and Martha show us a contrast of being Christian and doing Christian. And Jesus says to Mary, she's doing, she says, he says to Martha, Mary is doing the more important thing. She's learning to be Christian before she does Christian. Have you ever seen people that fake it? 
you know, fake their Christianity, fake their religious bent, whatever it might be. Uh, and, and it looks kind of fake, you know, and, and truly it is fake, isn't it? Because integrity says that what I am on the inside is what you see on the outside. Now, we evaluate people based on what we see, and a lot of times that's good, and we think they're a good person inside. But if we could see them behind closed doors, we could see them in the private moments of their life and the decisions that they make, we might think differently. So it's important to be something before you act like something. Otherwise, you're just acting like something. So the first time we see Mary and Martha, we see that going on. Now, in this episode, uh, and, and what was Martha in the first episode, what was Martha accusing Mary of? Wasting her time. Yeah, she's wasting her time sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's doing nothing. You know, she might be learning something, but who cares about that when you could be serving and you could be doing something. And so she accused her of wasting her time. Now, in our episode today, we find Jesus sitting at the table and Mary comes in and Martha's in the background again, getting ready to serve the meal. And Mary's sitting there getting ready to anoint his head with this very expensive perfume. Now, what did the other people in the room accuse her of wasting? Her money. Okay. And they almost acted as if her money was their money. She should have given this to us and we could have sold it. We could have fed the poor people. And I've often wondered what those yahoos were thinking when, when she used her gift how she wanted to, and they assumed that she should give it to them. Yeah, I don't know. That just, to me, doesn't, doesn't, that doesn't fly. But we see in Luke chapter, two, verse 40, or Luke chapter 10, verse 42, the first episode when Martha complains to Jesus about her not serving. Now, here's what Jesus says. Few things are needed. Okay, Jesus says, few things are needed. Uh, you know, almost as if to say, give me a bag of chips and a bottle of water, and I'm going to be fine for food. He says, few things are needed, or indeed, only one thing is needed. Not even food. He doesn't even put that on the list here. He says, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. She has chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn to be a Jesus follower rather than just act like one. And so the second episode, Jesus comes to her defense again. She is getting ready to anoint him with oil. And in fact, she has done so. And they get mad. And what do they do? They rebuke her harshly. And he, and he says to them, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus, in both instances, comes to defend Mary, who has revered him, who considers him worthy to be listened to, worthy to be followed, and worthy to be worshipped. So she does this extravagant thing for him. Chuck Swindoll said, uh, actually, he wrote in a book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. I don't know if you've read much of, of Charles Swindoll, but he's a great author, terrific author. If you get a chance to read any of his books, I would say do that. But here's what he says in regard to the, the passage that we've looked at today. He says this, I believe this event has been preserved to teach one major message. There are certain times when extravagance is appropriate. In our day of emphasis on high-tech calculations, finely tuned budgets with persistent reminders of cost, restraint, and propriety, that is, never being guilty of doing anything outside the bounds of ordinary, anything beyond the basics can be misconstrued as excessive. If you buy into that ever-present Spartan philosophy, then everything you build will be functional, ordinary, and basic. Everything you purchase will be at the lowest cost. Everything you do will be average. Now, based on that, he concludes this. I feel there are times when extravagant gifts are not only appropriate, 
They are occasionally essential. I don't know if you've ever worshipped Jesus extravagantly, and I don't know that you have to give a, you know, a, a great wealth, of, of a sum of wealth, in order to do that every time. But every once in a while, I believe that we ought to worship Jesus extravagantly so that he knows what we consider him worthy of. Now, the problem is that we as believers usually resort to the path of least resistance. And we look for the minimum qualifying offer, right? Whatever it takes to be a Christian, I'll perform up to the very minimum there. I want to squeak in, but I don't want to go crazy here. Kind of reminds me of uh, one of the early Apollo projects. In fact, someone stuck his head inside the capsule and said to the team of astronauts getting ready to take off, how does it feel? Now, how do you think it feels? I mean, they're in this tiny space capsule. And, and I would think, well, maybe they would say it's cramped. Maybe they'd say it's a little bit scary. But here's what one of them said. With a grin, one of the astronauts replied, it really makes you think twice in here when you realize everything in this whole project was constructed according to the lowest bid. <laughs> now, you know, I, that might be in the back of my head, but I don't want some Yahoo sitting next to me saying that. You know, I, yeah, that's true, huh? And you know the quality of the lowest bid there. Sadly, that's how many believers approach worship. You know, let's find out what the minimum is, and let's see if we can just, you know, struggle through it. Let's see if we can just offer a little something. Maybe Jesus will be satisfied. But I want you to consider worshiping him extravagantly. Now, Mary not only worshipped him extravagantly, but she did a second thing here. She worshipped him expensively. Expensively. It cost her something. Now, the perfume was what they refer to in verse 3 as pure nard. It was made from dried leaves of a rare Himalayan plant. Now, this was obviously an imported item, right? Imported items. So you can imagine imported items, you're going to have an increased expense. The rarity of the plant would also increase the expense. Now it says that it was worth about a year's salary. Now in those days, you know, it was, it was different than it is today. What's the median salary today, do you think, in the United States of America? $50, Nobody knows. Yeah, it's between fifty dollars and $55,000. So I don't know if you want to carry around some perfume that's worth fifty or $55,000. And guys, I don't know if you want to buy your wife that, your girlfriend. I don't know. You might, you might want to. But how many of you know the most expensive perfume there is on the market today? Anybody know? Ah, guys, take note here because you can show the, the one and only in your life. You can really show her something here by getting her a very extravagant gift. It's called Imperial Majesty Perfume. Write it down. You're going to want to shop for this. You're going to want to shop for this. Imperial Majesty Perfume. It sells for $12,721.89 per ounce. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is that you can't get it in an ounce. It only comes comes in 16.9 ounce decanters. Now... It costs you for that 16.9 ounce bottle of perfume, it will cost you a little over $215,000. Everybody just gasped for a minute. You know, that's just incredible, isn't it? But I've got a deal for you today. Guys, 
Here, see me after the service, because really the only thing that that is, it's, is, is it's Clive Christian number one pure perfume. You can buy the refill. You can buy a one ounce refill for a mere $1,738.32. What a bargain that is. Now, see me after the service, because I'll get that for you. Give me your money first. I'll order it, have it sent to your house. Now, why is it that it's so cheap for the refill? Well, let me tell you. Perfume manufacturers are smart. Not only will they not sell you one ounce, but they'll sell you, someplace they'll sell you a one ounce refill. But you have to buy the bottle first, because the bottle is the cost. It has a gold ring around the neck, and in that gold ring is, is, is placed a diamond. Now, that doesn't make you smell any better. It doesn't make you look any better. But it does make you pay $215,000 for a bottle of perfume. Now, what do you think that was? Translate that into Mary's day. A year's salary, $55,000 is a lot of money to pay for perfume, even though you could get something a little more expensive. But pure nard. It was probably, in fact, many times... Ladies would pass this down from generation to generation. It would be like a family heirloom. In fact, it was so expensive that it would rarely, if ever, be used. And so now Mary has this, and maybe it was from generations old, and something that's very dear to their family, something that, you know, was almost like an inheritance. You know, you'd never sell it, but I mean, it was, you know, if push came to shove and you really needed some money, you might be able to sell this on the open market for maybe a half a year's salary and get a good deal. And make some money. But she did not do that. What did she do with it? She gave it. She worshipped her Lord Jesus Christ. And she anointed his head with it. Now, our love is generally, many times, exhibited by what it costs us. Okay? Guys, if you're you're married or if you've ever been married, you bought your wife a ring probably. Okay? Now, we guys are pretty practical, aren't we? And we say, you know what, that's just a ring. And it's a symbol of my great love for you. So let's get the cheapest one we can. Now, if you're not married yet, don't do that. Because I did that. And I got Cindy this lovely ring. It was beautiful. I loved it to death. In fact, I wanted her to have that for the rest of her life. And so did she. But she later on wanted a bigger one. And so I ended up getting a bigger one. You know, I don't know. It's just the way, the nature of things. But... But often, often our, our, our value that we hold on the person we're loving is exhibited in the cost to us. So therefore, I love her so much, I would go out and buy her a 10 times bigger ring now, you know, because I have to to keep her, uh, because I've really ruined it today. Okay. Now, the value of the person dictates the value of the gift or the price of the gift. The value of the person dictates the price of the gift. Now, how many of you are students of King David? Man, I love King David. He's one of, he's one of my greats. I love studying King David. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David does something that's kind of bogus. He goes out and he, he counts all the number of troops that he has. Now, for some reason, it's not fully explained. We find that that was not what God wanted, and God brought a judgment upon him for doing it. Now, my thought is, my thought is that if a king is totally dependent upon God to win his battles and fight his fights, then it doesn't matter how many people you have, right? It doesn't have, matter how big your army is because God's going to take care of business. Now, 
What he did by counting his army is, number one, he showed some pride in what he had amassed as the king. Okay? Pride always goes before the fall. And also it said that I kind of count these troops as pretty valuable in the defense of Israel. God wanted to be the defender of Israel. He didn't want the army to be that. In fact, many times as you read through the Old Testament, you find that God used the army, but they never had to fight the battle. God won the battle before they ever got engaged. And so therefore, when David starts showing a reliance on the troops and a kind of a pride in the troops, it brings the judgment of God upon him. And so the prophet Gad comes to to David and he says, God has told me that you get a choice on how your punishment is going to be delivered. He says, you can experience, you know, the whole nation can experience three years of famine or you can experience three months of running before your enemy, where your enemy is going to pursue you and, and, and hurt you and, and take advantage of you. Three months of that. Or you can have three days of the plague. Now, what would you choose? The plague. <laughs> plague. Okay. Why? Because it's only three days, and we figure that we can survive three days. Well, that wasn't really what David considered. David t- chose the plague, but it was because he wanted to be in the hands of the merciful God. He didn't want to be at the hands of man. And so he says, I know that God is merciful, so I'm going to place my, hand, my life and the future of our nation in his hands, so we'll take the plague. Well, 70,000 Israelites were killed during those three days of plague. And the avenging angel came to this place in Jerusalem, and he's getting ready to, to wipe out some people in Jerusalem. And God held up his hand and says, no, go no further. And where the angel was, was this threshing floor of a guy named Aruna. Now, Gad, the prophet, comes back to David and he says, okay, we want, God wants you to, to build an altar there in honor of who God is. And so David says, cool, I'll go to that. And so he goes to this guy, Aruna, who owns the property there. And he says, hey, um, God wants me to build an altar here. And so Aruna, what does he say? Oh, you're the king. Man, I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you the timber to make the the altar with. I'll give you the oxen to sacrifice on it. I'll give you all that stuff. And David says, no. Now notice what he says in verse 24 of 2 Samuel 24. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. Now here's the reason. Okay, here's the reason. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Now, sometimes when we come to worship, sometimes we're looking for it to cost us nothing. And how valuable is something that costs you nothing? Not very valuable. And so what I want us to start thinking about is what did God do for us? How much did he love us? What did he give up for us? So that we can kind of have a model of what we ought to do in worship that expresses how much we love him and how expensive we're willing to pay, how much money we're willing to pay or what cost we're willing to bear in order to have him be elevated to where he should be. Let's take a look because true worship always costs us something. If it doesn't, It isn't real worship. In fact, it's not worth much. It might be a religious ritual. It might be um, an expression, but not truly an expression of our love for God. And I want us to start thinking that, that worship is an expression of how much we love God. And if it comes cheap, well, we have to evaluate that. John 3, 16, how much did God love us? God loved us so much 
that he uh, loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How much did God love us? He enough to sacrifice his one and only son, to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sin. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, listen up here. Your wives will love you for it. But God, dem- oh, oops. husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, how much did Christ love the church? He died for it. He died for it. Men, that's what the word, that's what Paul the Apostle tells us here in Ephesians 5. That's how we ought to love our wives. We ought to sacrifice for her. We ought to love her that way. Now, women, how many of you, how many of you know the word submit? <laughs> how to say it, how to spell it, but more importantly, how to live it. Now, I'm just going to, you know, we, we talk about this whole thing of, and this is just kind of a side note. You can, don't have to pay extra for this, but it's just kind of a side note. When, when we husbands love our wives like Christ loved the church and are willing to sacrifice for them, the submission really isn't even a factor because a woman will yield to that no matter what. He loves me enough to die for me. I don't care. I love him in, in return, and I will, and we'll have to do a study on submit because it doesn't mean just kowtow to his dominance, okay? But it means to yield to his loving leadership that he displays when he loves you like Christ loves the church, okay? Now, in Romans 5, 8, okay, so how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. That's how expensive it was. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Here's how God demonstrates his love. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Now, it's one thing to die for somebody that's going to turn around and be good. Okay? But Jesus died for everyone, whether they accept or reject. And I can't imagine what it would be like to give my life for somebody that says, so? Who cares? No big deal to me. I can't imagine what that would be like. But God loves us so much that he sacrificed his one and only son. Timothy Keller is a pastor at a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York. And uh, obviously a very affluent congregation, but he has one lady uh, that came to his church and had never realized that salvation, getting connected to God, is all about his grace and his mercy. She always believed that you had to be good enough to merit it. And so she comes to church and she heard the message about how God saves us and rescues us by his grace. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we could ever be good enough for. He just does it because he loves us and he wants us to be in his family. Now, Timothy had, had preached that message to her. And so she came up to him after the service and she says, I want you to know that that's the scariest message I ever heard. And he was kind of taken aback by that. He says, well, what was scary about that? And she says, well, this whole grace thing is scary for me. And he says, well, explain to me why that is. And here's what she replied. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. That makes some sense, doesn't it? If it was based on what we did. She says, but if I'm a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Ah, man. Tim Keller said that those words sank deep into him because he understood for the first time that she really understood what grace is all about. 
It's not just about getting a pass and getting a skip on, you know, on the sin that I have committed. But it's that Jesus demands something of me and he could ask anything of me because I owe him everything and he owes me nothing. It's I haven't merited anything and I don't deserve anything. And so therefore I can't say, hey, I've been good here, so you ought to be good to me. I can't say that anymore. He could demand everything from me. And so when we have that that idea in our head that, gee, he could ask anything of me, I think we're starting to really grasp onto what grace is all about. It's not just a free pass. It's not just a a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's he could demand anything of me that he wants, and it would be my honor to give it to him. Well, Mary worshipped him extravagantly. She worshipped him expensively. But thirdly, she worshipped him openly. Openly. I don't know about you, but for a long time when I was a kid, you know, I wasn't all that forward about my faith. You know, I wasn't always just, you know, out there, out front, being proud of who Jesus is. Uh, There might have been certain times in my life, to be quite honest, that I was reluctant to let people know that I was a believer. Well, if we truly worship him only, we're going to love him without shame in front of everybody. I don't know. Uh, do you remember the first time that you prayed at a meal in a restaurant and you wondered who's watching? Now, when I pray at a meal in a restaurant, I think this. I hope everybody's watching because I want them to know that I value God, that I treat him uh, with respect, that I want him in my life, that I think that he should be everywhere. I think he should affect everybody. Now, let's go back to Mary's day. It was the normal custom in her day for the women to wait on the men who were reclined at the table to serve them their food. And then they were excused and they would withdraw to another room. And if they would eat, they would eat or they would do some other. They'd get prepared to do the dishes or do whatever, you know, because they were considered to be servants. Now, Mary doesn't do that, does she? She stays in there while they reclined at the table and she anoints Jesus with this very expensive perfume. And what do the men in the room do? They chastise her. They really get on her case. They rebuke her sharply. In fact, here's what they say in verse 5. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Man, as if to say, what do you think you're doing? Not only have you done something dumb and you've, you've wasted a lot of money, but furthermore, you shouldn't even be in the room with us. And women were not highly regarded in those days as they are now. Uh, We men have gotten much smarter these days. And so we regard women much more highly now. But they rebuked her harshly because that was not the custom of the day. But she wanted to, in front of them, let them know what she believed about Jesus. She said, I value him. I'm giving him the most expensive gift I can conjure up here. And I'm going to bless him with it. Now, have you ever done something that's really cool and it didn't meet with the approval of people? You know, every once in a while that happens, doesn't it? You know, you think you've done something really remarkable, really impressive, and all of a sudden people just kind of poo-poo it. And you go, oh, well, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. No, that wasn't Mary here. She says, nonetheless, I will worship Jesus, and I will give him the best of what I have. Now, Teddy Roosevelt once said this. He says, it's not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong man stumbles or how the doer of deeds might have done better. 
The credit belongs to the man, or in this case, the woman, who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with sweat and dust and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions, and spends himself or herself in this situation in a worthy cause, who, if he fails, at least fails while doing greatly. That, that this place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. You know, that's what Chuck Swindoll would call the life of mediocrity. You don't have much success, but you don't have any failures either. And how many of us fail to strive for great acts of worship simply because we think, well, maybe I'll fail. Maybe it won't be met with, uh, you know, the... the, the the admiration that I hold for it. Maybe other people are going to look at me and shake my head. Maybe if I raise my hands in worship, people are going to say, what's wrong with them? Now, I want you to know that when you raise your hands in worship, it's a symbol. Have you ever played Cowboys and Indians? You know, and you have fake guns and you have, you know, you, you, you go, okay, if you're, in my day, if you were a cowboy, you always prevailed uh, on the Indians. And so if you got chosen to be an Indian, you were, you were doomed. Uh, but nonetheless, the cowboys would chase you, and they would say, stop, stop. And they would hold their hand out. And when they held their hand out, you were obligated to stop and raise your hands. Raise your hands because you surrendered. And when you raise your hands in worship, it's a symbol, a sign of surrender. And I think that we probably ought to do it more often than we do, but nonetheless... It's not about your comfort, but it's about the expense of the gift. It's about what I want to know. I want people to openly know that I am surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and I want him to be the leader of my life for as long as I live, and I want to do some great things for him. I want to do some things that are just astounding maybe to even my mind. And when I do that, I don't want to fear failure, but if I do fail, I want to fail Doing good stuff, not fail doing nothing. And that's what Teddy Roosevelt was telling us here. Now, in Mark chapter 14, we find that there's two verses prior to our story and two verses after the story. And they make a stark contrast. Now, remember, Mary worshipped Jesus extravagantly. She worshipped him expensively. She worshipped him openly. But there's another guy on the scene and we're going to find him in the passages before and after this extravagant act of worship. In verses 1 and 2, now we're going to set the context for where Jesus is. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Okay, So they're getting ready to, for a great holy time for the Jewish people. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly, you might want to circle that word, and kill him. Now, they know that there's a problem, though, because at this time, there's a lot of people that are getting very religious. Their focus is on, on God, and they say this, but not during the festival, they said, or people may riot. We can't go around killing people when we're talking about Passover. We can't go around killing people when we have this Feast of Unleavened Bread. We can't go around killing people doing that. Let's do it quietly. Now, that precedes this whole act of worship that Mary performs for Jesus. And right after that, verses 10 and 11, they get done with that act of worship, that meal that were there, and here's what happens immediately after that. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, 
went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, we see a contrast here, don't we? We see competing values. Mary loved her Lord publicly and openly. Now, Judas, he betrayed him privately and secretly. Just really the exact opposite. Mary loved her Lord expensively, more than a year's wages, right? Now, Judas sold his Lord cheaply for about the price of a slave, you know, 30 shekels of silver. So it was really pretty cheap. Now, Mary was criticized for her devotion, right? She was criticized. They said, hey, we could have sold this. We could have done this with it. And they scolded her. Jesus was praised for his deceit by the religious leaders. They were glad and they gave him money. Now, who do you think the winner and the losers are here? You know, if you look at the surface, you might say, well, Judas really was the winner. You know, Mary gets golden, she gets reprimanded, she gets kind of put down. He gets praised by the religious leaders and they give him all of this money. And so you'd say, well, you know, it looks like on the surface, maybe Judas came out the winner. Let's, let's take a look at it a little deeper. Mary is accused of wasting money, right? Jesus called Judas the son of perdition. That's back in John chapter 17. Son of perdition. You take that word perdition and you translate it. It's the same word that's used for waste. He's the son of waste. Now, what did Judas waste? He wasted his whole life. He wasted his life and wasted it for what? For 30 shekels of silver. Now, Judas accused Mary of wasting her money, but Judas wasted his life. He ended up hanging himself, spilling his guts out on a potter's field. Now, if you read that whole thing, it's really pretty gross. You know, he hangs himself, the rope breaks, and his guts flow out. Okay? Now, here's my my point to you. Don't do the same thing. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life worshiping just minimally, worshiping safely, worshiping so I don't get noticed. But I want you to worship extravagantly. Do something big. Okay, I want you to worship expensively. Let God know the value you have of him by what it costs you to do it. Okay, and then worship him openly. Openly. Let people know that you worship God, that you love him, that you care about him, and that you are led by him. Isaac Watts penned some words which later became a hymn. And part of that hymn is this. Were the whole realm of nature mine. If I had everything in nature, if the whole realm of nature were mine, that would be a present far too small. Ah, to give to my God. It would be a present far too small. So divine demands my soul, my life, my all. 